Welcome, everybody, to Slip Angle Show. I am Austin Cabot. Unfortunately, Adam Jabay is not with us today, but I do have John Wagliardo with me. Hello, everyone. And we are currently at 949 Racing with Emilio. How's it going, Emilio? It's going good. Thanks for having us. Thanks for coming by. Oh, of course. This is a place I've always wanted to come ever since I, well, even before I had a Miata. You know, I think uh, 6UL wheels actually made me get a Miata because they just look so great on there. We've heard that before from other people. <laughs> they got the car because they could get the wheels. Yeah. So it's just, it's a very, very nice looking wheel. And actually a lot of our Honda friends uh, run them as well. So that's actually, we think uh, our uh, uh, 6UL wheel, the 15 inch wheels end up on more Hondas than Miatas, but we don't do as much direct marketing there. So the Miata guys don't know it. Yeah. Um, but yeah, there's, uh, there's, they're on a lot of Hondas worldwide. So where did that uh, where did that design come up from? I know they've been around for a while, but um... well, it started. Um, it's kind of a, it's a two part story. One is the formation of the company, and the other is the the basic wheel de- design. So back in uh, '04, uh, I had a, a, a '99 Sport package that had a flying Miata Voodoo kit on it, and I was tracking it, and uh, you know, a little bit extra power, so I need a bigger tire, right? So I'm, I'm uh, I find out that. Um, Hoosier had built a 225-45-15 for, um, they built it for the Integras originally, um, okay. for uh, a certain class in uh, SCCA. And I thought, you know, that'll fit under Miata, I think. So the only wheels uh, readily available at the time were sevens. And um, uh, Goodwin Racing had, he would bring small batches of a certain 15 by 8 wheel, but it wasn't quite the right size or offset or yeah. weight or price. You remember the old ATS wheel? I do. It was a good wheel. Um, um, but I thought, you know, they're expensive and they're hard to get. I thought, you, you, but the sevens were readily available. They were everywhere. So I thought, well, somebody needs to make, somebody has to have an 8-inch wheel for this 225 tire. And at the time, I didn't know that the tire would be, work better on a 9. That, that came later. So um, I set about searching for one. So I spent like a year or so searching for this 15 by 8. It didn't exist. It, Realized I was going to have to get it made, and I didn't want to do a three-piece because it's redundant engineering to have bolts and fasteners yeah. and seals and some mess. So, really needs to be a monoblock wheel. So, I'm like, well, I'm going to have to have these made. So, I searched around, finally found a company in Malaysia that was willing to make the make the wheel for me, and uh, I'd already decided what my offset was going to be after doing some measuring under the car, and uh, they gave me a few basic spoke designs. At the time, I didn't really care. I was like, I just need the functional wheel. I want three sets of wheels, and I want them to be cheap. Right, so that if I bend one, I got spares and I can get more of them. So that was sort of the impetus, and uh, so I gave them uh, my parameters and uh, my weight target, and which was pretty ambitious. And they gave me some spoke designs, and I said, "Well, this is a good, you know." I looked at the spoke design and liked what they what they offered, but it was was it was too heavy, you know, or wouldn't clear the calipers or something. And some of them were copies, like they gave me one that looked like a TE37. I said, well, I can't yeah. do that just because it bugs me, you know? <laughs> yeah. But, but, um, but also it was heavy. It was a heavy design. TE37 is optimized for die, die forging, not, not for, for, for pressure casting, that, that shape, that spoke shape. So anyway, we went through a couple iterations, and they gave me the uh, spoke pattern that was originally for, that they had done for uh, an optional wheel for the Radical SR3, I think. The, not the one that was d- distributed in North America, the, but for the UK. Okay. It was a center lock wheel. And they showed me the spoke pattern. I go, well, that's kind of eye-catching. I've never seen that before. And I started looking at it, and I go, well, you know, you've got uh, even distance between the spoke feet at the yeah. rim, so it's real good load distribution, and the way the load pass goes. So I said, you know, that could actually work. So I says, yeah, let's use this, but I want to change. They had a step in it, and it was flat on the front, and all it really was from, like, 
two-dimensionally it looked kind of similar, but three-dimensionally it was totally different from the 6UL. So we changed everything. The, we put curvature in the spoke that wasn't there. So I gave them our, our brake pattern. I said, we need, need to clear this brake. And um, uh, changed a bunch of stuff. And so I gave them a list of things I wanted to change, and they came back with a, with a CAD drawing. I put it in the CAD viewer and spun it around. I go, that's money. And that was pretty much that. Our first try was pretty much the original 6UL. Made a few little tiny tweaks after that. But we added the second valve, you know, for, for nitrogen purging. But that was, um, so anyway, that wheel, we publicized it on the forums. And, of course, the Miata uh, community, you know, really wanted that wheel. So that really launched the company. And that yeah. was the start of it. The community went nuts. Yeah. They went nuts, I'd, yeah. I'd venture to say that it is the most popular wheel from an independent manufacturer or, you know. For small, um, yeah. Out of, yeah. yeah that small, isn't yeah. like a global, yeah. yeah, like Anki or something like that. Yeah. Yeah, so. yeah it's become... Um, it's become, I, I wouldn't say it's anywhere near like Panasport iconic, but on a much smaller scale, right. it has become kind of an iconic design for, for the Miata. And that's, that's pretty cool to be, to be a part of that. And, then, and then like anything else, you know, it's uh, necessity is the mother of invention. I needed a wheel for my, for my HPDE card. It did exist, so I had to invent these things. <laughs> yeah. And it turned out uh, that because I did my homework on getting it right, um, it worked for everybody else. And again, that's, that's really was the... The, the beginnings of the company. So it all started from like track day, bro. Hoosier, bro. Like... Pretty much. <laughs> Pretty much. I've got pictures of my, my old 99 sport package at um, Auto Club Speedway here in, here in Southern California with those 225 uh, RS304s. That's the old Hoosier mm -hmm. shoehorned onto a oh, set yeah. of 15 by 7 spec Miata wheels that I got. Well, no, it's actually pre-spec Miata. Uh, a set of 15 by 7 wheels I got from Goodwin Racing. Oh, wow. And they didn't look right. You know, you look at them, it's like, that's too narrow. Yeah, it's, it looks so, funny. So later on, experimenting with um, putting 205s on the 8-inch wheels, I noticed how much better they steered. And something I kind of knew intrinsically from some stuff I'd done back when I used to race pinos a long time ago about stretching the tire and triangulating the, the casing and making it stiff, um, that's what led me to try the 9-inch wheel. So it was a bit of a roll of the dice, but I have a really gut feeling, and based from an engineering perspective, that is the right size wheel for this tire. And we got them, and they fit. And, and at the time, it was really radical when we did the nine. So all the response from the forums is like, oh, this is huge. It's massive. And now it's like... It's standard. It's standard it now. Standard, yeah. It's become a standard fitment now. So it's, it kind of created that whole fitment. And there's people all around that are buying everybody else's 15 by 9 but mine and not knowing that, you know, they ask. I, I, it's funny. I actually have wheel companies calling me to sell me a wheel and it's my size, and they have two think, valves, and they have copy that they've taken from my website. And they say, this is the feature in the wheel. I said, really? That's remarkable. Yeah. Why didn't I think of that? Actually, I think I've seen you share so some unique. of that on Facebook before. It's so unique, yeah. I just laugh a little bit. That's funny. That's, so, uh, well, I know uh, you know for the wheels and everything, it kind of started from you you know, tracking your Miata yep. uh, and the HPD level. But take us back. Like, How did you get started into driving? Because I think that's something a lot of our listeners don't really know, is that you have a long experience you know, driving and racing a bunch of different things. Well, um, I was always definitely a car guy. When I was a kid, I used to drive around, walk around making car sounds, so I think I had it in my blood. But as um, <laughs> yeah. soon as I had, well, actually before I had my license, when I had my permit and I was first learning to drive, you know, first thing I did was find a canyon road and huck it around and nearly lose it, you know, like, well, like we all do, right? <laughs> That's right. And, uh, if only GoPros were around back then, oh, right? Oh, geez. I'm, glad, I'm thankful <laughs> that they are. There's some pretty embarrassing moments. How do you hold the steering wheel again? <laughs> you know? So... Uh, so Right away, I started autocrossing. That would have been, uh, I'm trying to think here. Uh, well, I was just doing canyon. I was a, I was a canyon, you know, nut yeah. back, you know, when I, when I was a kid. 
I was a teenager, early 20s. Um, what kind of car were you in? Uh, Pinot. Actually, my okay. mom had a Pinot, so awesome. I had a Pinot and got one and modified the engine, big cam and carburetor, manifold headers. And I remember I had Mustang wheels, Mustang GT, if it was the same bolt pattern. Yeah, that was, that was pretty common. So, and that's it's funny, too, because that's where I learned first about the, the tire tension. I looked at what all the European uh, touring cars were running, and they'd always run a wheel that was a little bit bigger than the tread. And I said, why did they do that, you know? And somewhere a long time ago, I remember reading some engineering paper, and I had about um, the triangulation of the casing. So I kind of knew that. So I had some big fat. So when I first built the car, I had big fat tires on it that kind of hung over the sides of the seven-inch wheels. And I didn't like the way it steered. And I was playing around with steering rack bushings and caster angles and all this stuff, trying to get the thing to steer as a driver. I could never get it to steer right. So I put some, decided to test my theory and put a smaller tire on it. Yeah. So I put a 205 that had some a little bit more sidewall tension on it, and suddenly the steering was amazing. <laughs> and and the car worked better, and it was a lighter tire and all that kind of stuff. So oh, yeah. that stuck in the back of my head. So when it came time to do these wheels, it's like, you know, I already have direct personal experience with this, and it's 20 years old or 30 years old at this point because I'm, I'm an old guy, you know. So uh, so it's funny how that, that all, you know, all these little data points over the years, you collect them and, and you use it. But so in any case... Uh, Canyon Roads, and then I think uh, late 80s started autocrossing. Okay. And then... With um, the Pinto or...? With the Pinto. Okay. Yeah, with the Pinto, believe it or not. And then um, at that point, I had already developed into be a pretty good intermediate level driver, so I could start instructing, and I was started instructing people. And I had my own personal approach. You know, I, I'm, a, I'm a very analytical kind of guy. Right. So when, when I would get beat as a driver, I wanted to know why. And I wasn't, I wouldn't just, you know, I wasn't driving hard enough. I didn't look at it that way. No, there's some technique involved there. What's this person doing? How are they holding the wheel? What are they paying attention to? Where are they looking? Everything. I'm trying to really analyze it. And I came upon a couple of things. The, the, the first thing I started to realize is that there's the ego part of it. Like any good musician will tell you, you got to pull your ego out of the music and just do what the song sounds, what the, yeah. what the music right. needs. And that's a hard thing to do if you're talented because you tend to, you have to have some ego to be confident in your talent. So there's, there's the, they conflict. And as a race driver, you have to have supreme confidence in what you're doing. But at the same time, you have to be subservient to what the car demands and the conditions and the environment. Right now, my tires are going off, but it's only my right, right front. And be subservient to that so, and drive the way the car wants. So what I really early, realized early on in autocrossing was... Um, and I tend to distill things down into simple little quotes that I can remember. And for me, it was do what the car wants. Give the car the, the inputs it wants, not what you want it to do. Right. And keep the chassis happy. Keep, there's a big difference. So it's paying attention to the contact patches and setting up your car and making your driving style what, whatever those tires want to go the fastest. You know, and, I, and even this is long before data acquisition and computers were really involved. But I thought, you know, if a computer could drive this car it would have a certain set of inputs. And when the sun came out, it would have a different set of inputs. And when the tires start to go off, it'd be this set of inputs. There's an optimum set of inputs. Your job as a driver to figure out what those are, not to try to manhandle it. And I would see guys that were really talented, had good car control, but they were inconsistent because that car control only applies when the car responds the way they want. Right. But the best drivers were a little quiet and would adapt their right. driving to the car and right. could drive anything fast. So I was exposed to, here in Southern California, um, uh, there's a company called AMCI, and they do, it's a, I think I remember it, it's an automotive 
um, marketing consultants incorporated or something like that. And what they okay. do is they do a lot of the testing. You, you're probably familiar with the company. So a lot of the top autocrosses here in SoCal happen to be guys who drive for AMCI. And their job was to take a production car that nobody ever seen before and bring the maximum performance out of that. And I go, well, how do you do that? And it's like, you have to be the kind of driver who listens to the car. Well, it turns out that those guys were some of the best autocross drivers and they could drive anything fast. So the light bulb went off of my head. It's not about how awesome I am, it's how well I can adapt to the car. That was huge. And that, to me, that was a big turning point. So then, as an instructor, I would always try to drive the widest range of cars that I could yeah. to learn from the car. Right. And I would ride with students. Sometimes students who were driving the car might not be as quick as I was, but they would do certain things that I weren't doing because they had adapted to the car. So I was really, really paying attention. I was like, well, I'm two seconds faster than my student, but he can make this car stop harder than I can because I've never done right. an all-wheel drive car with a bunch of stuff in the back of the car. Right. And now it's got a weird behavior or it's a, you know, a high, like a turbo lag front drive car. It's got its own way of being driven, you know, on, and it's got no brake feel. Okay, so that is its own thing. And all these different data points have come in, so I would try to absorb that. So I became a student of that on my own, and that was sort of the formation of my driving style, which is always to pay attention to what the car is doing. I think over the years, that's one of the reasons I've been able to teach myself to, to tune cars, is because I'm paying attention to what the contact patches are doing and not saying, well, I, I needed to do this or wanted to do this. I simply want to get from point A back to point A as quickly as possible right. and look at the data. And if the data says, well, you need to do this, and you, you look and say, well, I've never done that before, but it's clear that that's what the car wants, then I need to teach myself to make those driver inputs and optimize my suspension for that because that's what the car is going to do. If it's a long wheelbase car, doesn't rotate, don't ask it to rotate. It's not going to rotate. Ask it to do something, to do what it does really well, you know, and work within that. So that's that's the foundation of it. Okay. Yeah, and I know along those lines, you know, there's a lot of people that if they, they're they at a track day or something and they go out and the car isn't handling quite the way that they want, they bring it back in instead of staying out and trying to drive around it and make themselves better drivers having to deal with things. Yep. A lot of people don't realize, you know, that moving on, like in a wheel-to-wheel -wheel race, the car's understanding a little bit. You're not going to bring it in and just, you know, you're going to have to try and adapt yeah. around that. So, yeah. Yeah. you know, I think uh, I think driving a bunch of different cars, driving a bunch of different cars that have different setups really yep. makes you a, a well-rounded driver. Absolutely. Absolutely. So that became, you know, I, I, I've said it many times, I have the most respect for guys who are test drivers because the engineer says, okay, we just made a change. We changed, you know, this, this, and this. These really esoteric little items in the car. Go out and tell me how fast it'll go. And they've got a, they don't have all day. No. You've got three laps. And by the way, it's, it's overheating a little bit, but we're doing shock testing here. So try not to, try to short shift it and do the same laps you were doing before. <laughs> so the guy has to go out and do that. And he's paid to be able to tap into what that car's potential is and figure it out really, really quick. Yeah. And a good race driver can tell you 85% of what he's going to learn about that car in two turns. Right. You turn, you, you accelerate down the pit lane, you brake for the pit exit, or pit in, you know, the track entry, and then go up through two more gears and brake for the next turn. And if the tires are even lukewarm, you'll have a rough idea what the car is going to do. And right away, you know, if you've never been in that car, you know what it's going to feel like on the first lap. And it shouldn't take, a good driver also learns to track very quickly. That's the other thing I learned from autocrossing is that to be good at autocross, you have to know the, every inch, you don't have to know where every cone is. And it's a difficult 
memory skill. Some people have it, some don't, but you have to train yourself for that. What I learned is that it applied, it applied itself to race driving because you've got to be able to learn new racetracks. Yeah. And again, you don't have all day. You've got, you go there if it's an SCCA you know, event that you haven't been to and you've got one or two practice sessions, you've got qualifying races, you've got to be good in the qualifying races. And if it's a, if it's a you know, double national or something like that, you don't have a whole week. Right. You've got a very limited amount of time to find that those last few tents and if it's a tightly fought class like spec miata or something you know you've got to be within hundreds yeah to be so you've got to learn it really really fast the surface changes the way it changes with the weather oh in the afternoon this this turn is overcast and has shade on them you need to know that when you have to always be analyzing you always be analyzing so all this stuff it's far deeper than most people yeah uh, uh take uh, take into account but um learning the car learning the track and so the memorization skills were huge. Yeah. I think at a certain level, too, you kind of get over thinking about your actual inputs and driving so much, and you, you can kind of relax a little bit and, yes. and kind of analyze and, and modify your driving on the fly. Like, you're going through a corner, something doesn't work out right. In your mind, you make a little note, hey, let's try this next time. Yeah. And that's where I think that's what separates some of the, the better and faster and really just more advanced drivers uh, from the others. I mean, you can be fast either way. But I think the, the ones that are truly fast and consistently fast are the ones that are able to analyze like we were talking about. You have some reserve capacity. Yeah. Yeah, there's an interesting um, uh, uh, there's a book, uh, uh, Keith Code, a uh, motorcycle racer back in the 70s, uh, AMA road racer, wrote a book called uh, Twist of the Wrist. Kind of, a, yeah. kind of a seminal book if you're a motorcycle road racer or track day guy. There's a lot of books now, but his was the, really the first one back in the 70s. And he used this... Uh, this metaphor for your attention span being like a dollar bill, and you've only got a certain amount of attention you can, you can spend. And the more adept you are at controlling the vehicle, the less of your total attention span is, is, is allocated towards making it go down the road. So if you're maxed out, you can have a guy, we've all had them, students, who are going maybe only a half second slower than you're capable of going in the car, but you can see they're at 98%. Right. They're just about mentally redlined. You drive it at that speed, and you can drive it with one hand while you're talking to them, making sure the air conditioning's turned out. <laughs> right. It's a whole different animal, and they yeah. don't realize. They're like, you know, and in their head, they're like, "Oh, I almost, I almost caught my instructor. He's not that hot." It's like, yeah, but he can do that in the rain at night. Yeah, you know, um, on on three hours of sleep, there's a big difference. And, yeah, and so uh, that's the other thing is making those, like you said, the being able to draw on a li- library of experience and have it all be intuition. So you're not, co- you know, consciously thinking. Well, I need to move my hands down on the steering wheel a little bit. No, no, no. That's all got to be, like breathing. It's muscle memory. At that it's point. muscle memory. Yeah. yeah. And 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 the more experience you have, the more, the deeper you can get into the vehicle dynamics purely on muscle memory. The car, the the front tires start to go off. It's not a conscious decision. You just, without even knowing, you change your braking input and the way you trail off and your line into the turn. You're like. Um, you feel the front brake starting to go without even thinking about it. You start popping those of the car out in the straightaway, so you're drafting by half a car width, um, and then moving back to cool the brakes um, while still maintaining the draft. You don't even realize you're doing it. And there's there's a whole several layers of that. That again, somebody says, "Well, that that road racer guy, I matched his lap time with my time attack car." Says, "Yeah, but you can't do that for three hours no. with traffic. With traffic, and, yeah. like he can." No, Fatigue. and this totally relates to your experience with endurance racing. No, and yeah, it goes the same way. Yep. When you spend hours in a car and your focus starts to to go away, yeah, and you have to make sure it becomes mus- muscle memory that you're just focused the whole time. That's yeah. what you have to be focused on. Yeah, it's it's being always having that part of your brain that's aware of what the car is doing, 
and remembering what the what the if you got radios, you know what the crew guy is telling you is like, hey, this this is a, this is our new shift point, this is our new target lap time. Um, watch the oil temps. And um, last two stints, we were were, were we we almost quartered the right front. So and if it's a certain kind of course, you say, okay, well I'll I'll take the rights hard, but I'll take it easy on the lefts, you know, or whatever, or just that one left or whatever. And you have to. All that's automatic. You're not really consciously thinking about it because you've got to be pay, paying attention to traffic. And if you're a good endurance driver, you're trying to have the best gain, the most track position with the least amount of fuel and brakes and wear and tear in the car. Yeah. So you're trying to set up your passes early so you don't have to make any sudden movements at the car or use any more revs than you have to. Again, that's all automatic. You're not even really thinking about yeah. it. You really only think about consciously like race strategy. Like, okay, we're thinking, you know, like for me, I was the team manager and I was out there driving, so I might make a decision like uh, uh, deciding on a fuel stop or on the race strategy. But all the driving part is all kind of automatic. Yeah, yeah, it's kind of become second nature, and yeah. yeah, and that's when that's when you start getting very fast too. So when you can start getting to that level, it just becomes second nature, and you just do it. Yeah. So I think there's, and you don't realize that it happens, but all of a sudden one day you're like, holy crap, I can do all this stuff, like, and not. You can almost check out, I don't want to say check out mentally while you're driving, mm -hmm. but you could be thinking about, you know, what you're going to be cooking for dinner or something mm -hmm. while yeah. you're out there cruising around the track. Yeah. yeah, I don't ever quite get, let myself get that, that loose, but you, you could, there's, there's brain power left over for doing race calculations. And I would find myself doing that in the 25 and some of the three hour races we would do where I would start certain sections of the course where I didn't have to be as focused. Um, I would set, let myself do, um, fuel calculations and I'd be counting the number of stops and and certain parts of the track I couldn't do the math and stay focused so I would pick up where I left off on the straightaway okay and where were we now we were 15 laps if we do 16 laps that means two laps two laps less and I'm doing this math in my head and then I'd go flying down into turn one and I would oh, shut crap, that break off zone. <laughs> no and I would just say okay let's pick this up next lap because yeah. I couldn't do it in the turns and I'd yeah. come back and I'd exit 15 I roll back up okay we were at 15 and a half laps that's the two you know and I start doing the math the kind of math calculations where you're kind of like looking up and to the left and using that part of the brain, you know, yeah, <laughs> while you're zipping down the stairway. It's like that cognitive realization, essentially, yeah. where you're just, like yeah. you said, you pick back up, you let it go, pick back up. Yeah. Yeah. So, so going back to that AMCI stuff, you know, and, and your driving career from that point, um, you know, you, when did you, like, start doing track days? Um, so as it happens, you know, again, this is a, a sort of a bigger question, track days in the U.S. used to not exist. Right. That's right. Because um, there were... Uh, cl racing clubs that would rent the tracks and then pr professional promoters that would rent the really nice tracks and the little racing clubs couldn't afford the really nice tracks. Um, and back, back in the seventies, there was less of a difference between the club tracks and the pro level tracks. Now there's a bigger difference. You know, like, you, you know, Coda compared to say button willow, you know, one's a right. grubby little cl club track and one's this super mega the premier, you know, premier track, in top the tier US. track. Yeah. yeah. Top tier track that is, is losing money. Separate conversation. Oh, yeah. Different conversation. So separate hey, conversation. racing never makes money, though, right? <laughs> no, it's, it's the art of making money, uh, turning money into noise. That's what racing is. But anyway, um, so there used to be no, no track promoters. And here in Southern California, the only real track day promoter was uh, Alpha Club. Uh, uh, and there really were no others. There's a few others. You'd get like Porsche Club and Ferrari Club would have like one event a year. But Alpha okay. Club would do like four a year. And they were open to other marks. And that was the beginning of track days in Southern California. Around, around what time was that? Like this what years? Been, they did their first track days, I think, in the late 70s. Okay. And then mid-80s, they were doing a regular schedule of four to six events a year. But they were the only ones. Okay. And nationwide, from what I understand, that was pretty rare. There was very few 
It was just wheel to wheel racing, essentially. It was wheel to wheel racing, or it was a Mark Club. Like you owned a Ferrari, and they would go to Watkins Glen once a year, okay. yeah. and that was it. And if you were anywhere in that area and you wanted to run Watkins Glen, you got a club racing license, and that was it. There was no such thing as HPD. So anyway, there was Alpha Club here, and we heard about it, and I thought, what? I can drive on a racetrack <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> in my streetcar? I'm so all over that. So that was. Uh, you know, 88, 89 for me, did my first HPDE. And of course, instantly I'm hooked. And I said, yeah. well, I came out here, I spent X amount of dollars. I don't remember what it was back then. And I got to drive for some crazy amount of time, like an hour and a half, two hours. I didn't have to stand in the park a lot in the baking <laughs> Southern, right. Southern California heat. You know, we don't have your humid, but we have, we have a hundred no, degrees. It still gets hot. It yeah. gets boiling hot, you know? And, uh, and it was really quick. I was like, okay, yeah, I, I dig autocross and I like doing it, but it is, it is, I, I, I like to use the metaphor. It's like dancing with the girl at the party or taking her home. There's two different animals. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Going to the track <laughs> yeah. is, is a whole different animal. So, that's right. So, um, so uh, yeah, so that started that, uh, that aspect of it. And I actually, it, most people don't know, know this about me, but I ride bicycles a lot. Yeah. And right after that period of autocross, I actually left the auto industry completely, com- completely and spent almost 10 years racing bicycles for a period that I didn't even own a car. Yeah, you rode, That's right. you, you rode professionally too, didn't you? No, I, I, I would enter pro races as oh, an okay. amateur and occasionally locally here beat some of the, like, the second-tier pros. So I got pretty good on, on a bicycle, won some national championships and whatnot. But that was like a, a separate phase of my life and then came back to the car stuff around 2001 or so and started building cars and, and getting okay. back into it and started the business back up. What, what drew you back in? Well, I was always a car guy the whole yeah. time. It was just I was really focused on cycling. Um, the, the, the cycling the, became your career, right? Yeah. I was in the bike industry. I worked for bike, bike companies and I learned a lot of engineering stuff, uh, production engineering, uh, QC, a lot of the stuff I use in this company. I learned, you know, going over to Asia, talking to suppliers and stuff like that. I learned, uh, uh learned a lot of information and, uh, was involved, you know, naturally because what my character is, I got stuck my nose in the highest levels of, of bike stuff. So I was, you know, helping, um, set up how the race team bikes at, Team GT Bicycles. I was, yeah. the, I was the lead mechanic there for a while. Okay. Not the guy with the most experience, but the guy that was um, in charge of all the equipment, making sure everything got built. And so I would liaise from the race team to the product R&D guys. It's like, okay, that link isn't working. We need to change that. This shock needs to change. We need to use this frame material instead of this. And they're like, but this frame material is what we're known for. Yeah, but that's not, that's not what the racers want. The racers want this other frame material. Yeah. Well, they, 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 were, they were hardcore on titanium. I said, Titanium is just not going to work. It's not the way of the future. It's too expensive to make. I know it's sexy and all that, but it, you need to do aluminum frames. And yeah. they need to be butted. They need to have really big down tubes so and everything. Were you around at GT when they did the box series? Like the, the chain stay? Well, I was the, a, a cross-country and cross-country oh, okay. downhill guy. Not, okay. Yeah, they were. I, okay. Yes, we were. I was there when the box series was, was, it was introduced. And uh, yeah, it was it was pretty badass. We all yeah. remember seeing the prototypes rolling around. And we were like, damn. <laughs> yeah. That was a serious... That was... Yeah, for all these guys, they don't, guys don't realize a top level, pro level BMX guy is, you know, fifteen, eighteen hundred watts at the start from like twenty RPM. It's like a Tesla. He's t- like a yeah, Tesla. Yeah, they take off. off. Yeah. They rocket out of the start. Rocket out of the start. So anyway, so that experience, that technical experience, was, you know, it's when you start a business, it's all the data points of all the things you've done since you were a kid, professionally working for other people, making them money, things you learned in school, things you learned in your private, and it all kind of gels together so that that right. was that technical uh inf- learning how to valve shocks yeah playing around with shim stacks you know yeah. all that been looking at uh, shock dyno plots and regressive and digressive valving i knew about that 20 years ago and was playing around with that and riding the bikes 
and seeing how the shocked behaved, you know, at the World Cup level. So, um, and luckily, some of the mechanics were not riders, but some of the mechanics were pretty good riders in their own right, which I was. So I could actually ride the World Cup bikes and say, oh, this is how it's working, and give it back to the, give it back to the rider. And so like a test, I, test rider. Yeah, and, yeah, <laughs> and play with this. I say, you know, it, you know, if you don't like it, we'll change this, and I explain to the rider what it's doing. So they were kind of more well-versed, and they could learn to uh, adjust the bike themselves in training and stuff. So it was uh, good information. Yeah. So if you, you started doing track days again back in 2000, 2001, I think you said. Mm-hmm. Um, when did you start getting into the wheel-to-wheel thing? Wheel the wheel didn't start till probably it was '09. Believe it or not, I was okay. still doing HPD all that all all through that period, and you know, doing doing time attack, which is not racing, just doing time attack, and uh, and uh, I didn't get my first comp license I think till '08 or no '09. So it was actually pretty pretty recently. But as soon as yeah. we did, we started. I was racing 40 hours a year. I mean, we would start doing enduros. And I would do multiple cars and um, do multiple sprint races per weekend. So, you know, we went from from zero to sixty. You know, we went yeah. from from not doing any club racing to doing. Um, and here in California, you know, here in the South, you know, you race all year long. It's not like right. being in Minnesota where you race four months a year. Um, you know, we race from from January to through. You just November. don't get a break. It's relentless the on the states wallet. that actually have a winter. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We have no winter, so we race all all year long, and we would do enduros and then. We started to have ambitions for the 25 right away, so we thought, well, we need to learn. We need to learn this, so we started doing chump car events, you know, which are 14, 14 hour. We did, a, I think, we didn't do any limits, all, all chump car, um, and used them as training for the enduro team. So we'd have guys come out, um, friends of ours who wanted to be on the team, and sort of coach them and train them. And we knew who was going to work and who wasn't going to work, and building our team before we ever went to the 25. But we, you know, we probably had, by the time we got to our first 25, which we won. We probably had something like fifty or eighty endurance team uh, hours as a team on the car and yeah. training. So it wasn't like we were noobs. So we were noobs to the twenty-five, but we were not noobs to the to. We were pretty pretty well uh, pretty well dialed machine by that point. So I think we surprised a lot of people by winning our first twenty-five and beating all the factory teams and finishing uh, an E two Miata in the top ten, which had never been done before. So. Right. So, um, but uh, a lot of preparation went into it. A lot of preparation. Yeah. Of that. Yeah. There's a lot of years and a lot of background went into that. And I was sort of the lead coach of all the drivers. We learned a lot about both sprint driving and about endurance driving leading up to that. Um, having spec Miata guys who were really good at being instinctive and quick and hyper aggressive, um, bringing them into the team and trying to teach them how to be an endurance driver was really hard because they were too tough on the cars. They'd always hit. Yeah. The contact. It's a different and, dynamic. It's a different dynamic. It's a different. Uh, driving approach and ultimately what we learned is to be a good sprint driver you have to operate completely on instinct because more often than not you only get one opportunity at a at a, at a pass you follow some guy around right. he's really good you're sitting on his wheel and he doesn't leave an opening so you just sit there and try not to make mistakes try to keep your tires alive try to keep your tire your engine cool but popping out you know if it's a spec and or something like a spec you know where you're where you're club racing and wait for him to make make a mistake, and when it's there, you've got to be able to pounce. And it's you, it, it's got to be it's milliseconds. It's if you wait a half a second, the window's long since gone. That ship has sailed. It's got to be within a hundred, two hundred milliseconds. It's tenth, two tenths of a second. You've got to make your decision, act, and execute. Boom. And the problem is in endurance racing, is that your sprint, the really good fast sprint guys, would go for the hole, and it's an endurance race, and there's three hours to go, and it's fourth lap. <laughs> And they bend the car, and it's like, yep. whoa, guy, yeah. whoa, chill out. So it, it was a long, 
period of getting our fast guys to slow down and learn to take care of the car has a different dynamic. What we need you to do, okay, the car will do a two-minute lap by itself. And we need you to do 201 and a halfs without using up the tires and touching anything. Yeah. That is actually really hard to do because anybody can go out and push and do a 201 and a half. But you've got to be relaxed, not sliding, easy on the brakes, short shifting, and going only a second and a half slower than the ultimate sprint potential of that car. And to get the guys to do that, to, to back off and save the car, was tough to do. So they'd come in, the brakes would be toast, wheel bearings would be toast because they're hitting curves everywhere, flat-spotted tires. You're like, guys, guys, it's not a sprint race. <laughs> yeah, you got, like the that. car has to be alive at the end of three hours, and certainly not going to work for a 25. So um, we had at least one really good sprint uh, spec Miata guy who ran with us a few times, and eventually we had to not invite him back because we could just never get him to not hit stuff. He'd always come back, and you know this. This was this was the epiphany. I I says I would tell the guy after the, he came off session, you know, uh, dude, there's marks all over the car. He says I didn't hit anything, and I says I looked at the car very carefully. These are marks that were not on the car when you, when you went out. I says I'm telling you, I didn't hit anything. I says you know, and then he, then he pauses and he says the one guy bumped me slight in the back, and I rubbed a little <laughs> bit here, and I says that constitutes contact. Yeah, right. that little bit of that tire, that fender being pushed down on the tire might cut it when you just slightly touch your wheel to another it knocks alignment out for a 35 minute sprint race having a 16 inch more toe in is not the end of the world but for a 25 hour race that means two extra tire stops right i says you don't understand and i and and he so i would send him out again and he would still come back with marks in the car and i says i i didn't tell him why i just didn't invite him back right and some guys get it and other guys figured it out some of the right. some really good um top national level spec miata guys run with us and they learned how to go flip that switch and go into enduro mode, short shift, not slide, and still just rocketing and just slicing through traffic. These guys have such ability. What we learned is if a guy has the ability to go really fast, it's easy for him to go slow as long as he can get into that mode of taking care of the car. So for him, if our target lap time is a 202 and the car is capable of twos, two flats, that's easy. He's, he's cruise mode. But for the guy who's always gentle on the car but can only do a 203, if you push him to a 202, he's now into that spending his whole dollar trying to keep the car on the track yeah. right. mode. So you need the guy who can do a 202 only spending 15 cents. Yeah, that's right. So it was, uh, and that was an epiphany both for me as a team manager, but also as a driver myself. And it shed some light on what I was doing behind the wheel and helped me do my job better. Okay. So, and I know that, uh, you know, now you guys are starting to do, you know, we were talking about before some of the super Miata stuff. Yeah. Um, Care to shed some light on that for, for the listeners? You know, kind of what the premise is behind it and what you guys do? Uh, it's cost-effective racing. You know, we did, we raced NASA almost exclusively for three years or so. When we had a lot of fun with them, made a lot of, a lot of good friends and had a lot of great races. But, um, you know, NASA racing has its strengths and weaknesses, just like any organization around the world, SCCA or any other you can mention. Right. Um, it's pluses and minuses. Ultimately, the strength of it is the social thing. You get to go race with your friends, and that's job one is to go have fun, right? Right. Um, whether you're winning or not, you get, if, if you were there on an empty racetrack and they handed you a trophy, you'd be like, this is dull. Where are my, where are my friends? You know? Yeah, that's right. You know, I would rather lose and have all my friends there than go show up in an empty racetrack and somebody just hands me a trophy. That would be dumb. So, um, so I miss that aspect of it, but, um, it's more fun to beat your friends. It really is. It is more fun. Yeah. yeah I, I read that somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, but, uh, but for us, um, it really became the cost of it. And I'm sort of, a, as you can tell, I'm sort of a, when it comes to racing, I get kind of all or nothing. I get very focused and want to do it quote unquote the right way. 
And so we built our cars, you know, to the limit of the rules. We go, we always tell people who ask us, you know, how do you build a fast PT car? It's just, do you have a rule book? Well, no. And I said, don't even talk to me. <laughs> Get a rule book, learn it inside out and backwards. There are plenty of places that you can drive a car through to a national championship. Right. And when you find a really big one, they'll, they'll make a rule change. That's just fine. That's what rule, that's what you race, you know, uh, Tudor and Pirelli World Challenge. Um, it's not about who has the fastest car. It's the best sandbaggers because every team, every car is capable of winning. It's just learning when, what races to win. That's like right. I was saying, you know, like if you go race, if the Kia beats the Chevy at Belle Isle right next to Detroit, that's bad because <laughs> the Chevy's going to throw a conniption fit. But if they beat them in Long Beach where Chevy doesn't care in that market, you know, that's, they're less likely to get a rule change. It's all politics oh, and, yeah. Yeah. and, and NASA is no different. So if you, uh, if you do well, you get rules changed, which is fine. But they're always there. There's always room for a good driver who can really set up a car to get his car dialed within, within the rules. Um, and that's one of the things I liked about the NASA program is that you, uh, um, it doesn't really engender cheating because there's no reason to. You, the, the rule book's wide open. Just be smart. Yeah. Just do your homework. Use the, use the points on things that matter. Use the points on things that matter. And, you know, uh, here's the classic example. For me in performance touring, you know, they allow you to put a plastic windshield in. And I'd walk through the paddock and I'd look at all the PT cars and there'd be whatever, let's say 30 PT cars and three of them would have plastic windshields. Two of them were mine. And somebody say, well, how come your cars are so fast? I says, you know, I don't even have to look underneath your car to tell you I'm going to beat you yeah. because you have a glass windshield, which means you did not use the rule book to its full advantage. It means you probably not seam welded. That means you probably didn't cut down the wiring harness to save 18 pounds. Mass centralization. I can take my bumper supports out. So I do. Yeah. And it takes weight off the corners of the car. So my rotate, my car rotates at three degrees more per second than yours will. And it always will because I don't have bumper supports and you left yours in, you know, and be maximized, you know, maximized. And so it's it's simple stuff. So, um, you're not competitive if you're not looking for the best way to optimize your car. Yeah. I mean, period. But wherever it was. So for us in, so with the super yacht thing came about once we'd achieved all our goals in NASA, we won 25 hours, won national championships in a couple different classes. And, um, it was expensive to run. And what we found it's kind of a double edged sword by being, pretty good at it um uh we were racing against some of our customers right (laughs) and our customers couldn't keep up with us because you know we would give them most of our information but i always tell them hey i'm going to give you 95 percent of what i know and you buy the same parts that i have on my car but ultimately that last five percent that's for me so i can win the trophy you know and uh, so people would leave the class when that was sort of counterproductive i want to go into a, a class and make it bigger but uh the class actually got smaller because we were in it and um and so there, so yes, we have the development, and on one hand, as for our brand, it sells lots, lots of Zetas and wheels and brakes and whatever we have, and uh, you know we publish our alignment specs, so it's good for the business in that aspect, but it's not good for for the racing. So that was that aspect. The other is because the way the rules are written, um, you know, the car was competitive on Hoosiers, and to run against another competitive team, you had to run a lot of Hoosiers. And I thought, you know, we're running a little 130, 140 horsepower Miata and spending. 1200 bucks a weekend on tires. It's, you know, it's, I would rather go race a Corvette. You know, yeah. I'm going to spend yeah. that kind of money. So it really came down to we've already won anything, everything. We've already sort of proven that we can do it. So there's no reason to do this for the next 10 years. The only reason to do that is if the racing was really good. The racing wasn't always really good. At a local level, we had no competition. The only guy that was close to me was my teammate in a car that I built. You know, so And third place was you know, literally like a lap down. Yeah. Weekend after weekend after weekend. And after I was spending all this money, I thought, you know, this is, I'm beating a dead horse here. I need to either move to a different class, but anything I go to is going to cost more money. Or 
start my own racing series. And we had kicked around the idea before I even got my license back in like 07. We had talked about Super Miata, about creating a racing series for a, a kind of an inexpensive but fun to drive Miata that had like a closed rule set, one that it all aimed at keeping the cost down. That was like the primary goal. So around 13 or so, um, when we kind of sort of got burned out on spending money with NASA, I said, you know, let's do, let's bring Super Miata back to life. That idea, let's bring it out of the, you know, shake the dust off of it. And we had like a rule set that was like half written. We'd already published on a few forums. Let's, let's flesh that out and start doing some test races. So we did, and it's, it's small. It's a local series, but the cars are, um, they're faster than an equivalent PT car, and they're a lot cheaper to build, and we have really close racing. Racing's we, very good. We do inverted grids. Um, we coach all of the new guys, unlike SCCA, where you walk up to your competitor and say, hey, can I see your data? They look at you like you're from Mars, you know. In, in, in Super Miata, I walk over to the new drivers, and I say, give me your data, and I'll come into my uh, RV and bring your video card, and we're going to show you how to go around this track fast. We built a car to train the noob drivers. Um, so we go a long way. So we have the closest delta between the back and the front of the field um, because we train all the, the, all the new people. Um, they go in uh, because we do inverted starts. We do four standing start super sprints yeah. every, every weekend. Every driver sooner or later gets to start on pole. And you get all the fast drivers coming barreling down on you in and, and the, and the first turn. And unlike other clubs where they tell you to get out of the way we tell we tell them defend learn how to defend yeah. mm. learn how to use your mirrors learn how to stay in front for as long as you can and when they one of those noob drivers stays in front for like two laps without making any illegal blocking moves and is actually going fast everybody applauds them at the end of the race that's outstanding you did a great job and here's the mistake you finally made that led us by and we show them how not to make that mistake again yeah. so after six and we do four races a weekend so by like halfway through the season They've become very adept yeah. at blocking, and they've become very adept at getting into that first turn quickly and gaining track positions, and that's what our series is about. And you know what? We have a ton of fun, and it's very cheap, and that's what the series is about. Okay. Yeah. Well, we're you, gonna... you see that rapid increase in, in skill, and then going back to what you said earlier, it's, the, it's pushing them to that next level of focus. Yeah, it does. Yeah, we do a lot of that, which is half is teaching them the track, and how to get around the track quickly in a, like a qualifying environment so it's nobody else around so that they can then use less energy getting around the track quickly and then teaching them the intuitive um, race, racecraft skills. I always say um, it's not about the car or about qualifying. It's about racecraft. Super Miata is about racecraft. That's what we really focus on because that's the most fun. If anybody who's done, you guys have both done Chump Car, so you know, you know how, how much fun it is yeah. to be really pushing your mental limits on the track in, in terms of making judgment on passes. Should I go? Should I wait? Should I try to set them up next lap and all that kind of, that is the, that it's it. That's the core of what, what makes that so, um, uh, so motivating. You're so motivated to go suffer in the heat and do all the work to get the car ready. Cause you right. know, you get it, you get, you get that one stint and you're like, Oh, sweet. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> that's what it's all about. And the that's ability about. to handle the pressure. Yeah. That's the fun parts. Yeah, you get to you, you you get yourself ready for that, you know, um, knowing that the team's counting on you and and you're there's the risk factor, you know. I'm not an adrenaline junkie. I don't think you guys either. As far as like, I want to go like almost kill myself and that kills me. <laughs> no. I don't. I'm not that like <laughs> no. that. And most only people, if I can put it up on YouTube. Yeah, that's different. <laughs> then I might. That's different. If somebody got it on their <laughs> smartphone, then then I'll do it. You know, uh, depends on how many drinks I've had. But um, you know, people outside of race driving probably think we're like you know, quote unquote, thrill seekers, like the people who are like extreme sports who are like, 
you know, like base jumping or something yeah, like that. Yeah, mountain, it's like, mountain no, climbing and all no, that. No, those yeah. guys, you know, one out of 10 of those guys dies every year. Yeah. You know, and race driving, it's like one out of every 200,000 or something. It's yeah. like some tiny little, it's not, it's, it's, I'm way safer in my race car than I am driving home tonight. Yeah. No doubt. Well, it's, it's like those, <laughs> it's like those memes that are on the internet. It's like what my friends think I do, what yeah. my mom thinks it I is. do, <laughs> what I actually yeah. do. <laughs> so the thing you talk, you talk about, uh, mentioned about the, the, the stress factor, it's not a, it's not a like, I'm risking my life because I don't really feel like that. But there still is that component of like, well, I've got to be smart here because if I get this wrong, I get my get put into the wall of champions on turn five. So yeah. I've got to be smart about this, you know, or it's starting to rain. And I don't think these guys around me are really as good in the wet as I am. And I know this track and I know where the water collects and maybe they don't. And little things like that start to play in the back of your mind. So there's the fear factor that comes in. It's and tense. That, and that affects the stress. It's like, I've got to be calm and not using up 60 my percent of my i'm not using 65 cents to to deal with that stress yeah. like i've got to put that out of my mind be confident in my abilities make good decisions and be calm and 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 just putting yourself into that mode just the act of pushing that brain down quelling down that fear that's a rush yeah that's a rush it is i got this i yeah. got this and while you're kind of got the adrenaline shake but you're driving and you're calm and your steering inputs are good and your brake inputs are good. Yeah, I mean, anybody who's, who's listening to this and is doing HPDE that's like, so that's what racing is. Yes, my friend, that's what racing is. Racing <laughs> is a lot more than doing one lap by yourself. And when you time attack guys do one lap and you're really proud of that and you beat a race driver, you have no there's, idea. Yeah, there's a lot you more stuff no going idea. on. That's like throwing a football. And being in the Super Bowl, there's yeah. two different animals. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so, so well, I know you guys have your uh, your new ND out there, your ND Miata, um, and had it out at, at Miata's at Laguna Seca. Yep. Or sorry, Miata's at Mazda Raceway. Sorry, Rick. Thank you. Else, we're gonna throw something across yeah, the table. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> No, he already called me out on that when I was interviewing him. But uh, what do you think of it? I know you guys have have done a little bit of stuff um, to it. You want to tell some of our listeners? Uh, what well, you've got going so it's far? a great platform. Um, I guess I, I'm getting a couple different questions specific to the ND and some that are just um, uh, generic about the car. So, so first off, my impressions of the car, and it's, I think I published some stuff in a few. It's pretty much been uh, echoed elsewhere, is that it's kind of like, like a modern NA. It's a very agile, um, softly suspended car. It has a lot of the character of the original NA. Um, a lot of fun to drive. Bone stock, it's one of those cars that the way it leaves the factory, it's already fun. You don't need to modify. It's faster when you put sticky tires and exhaust and all that kind of stuff on it. But for anybody here, and this is the story I like to tell, is, is you, if, if you haven't driven one, you go drive a used $1,500 Craigslist beat or an NA6 that you see. It's a 91, 92. It's got AC. Tires are mismatched. And shocks are clearly blown. It's got some holes in the soft top. And you go huck it around a business park in the middle of the night, and, you're, and you come back with the Pardon the language, but it's a shit-eating grin because yeah, it's right. fun. <laughs> and there's very few production cars that bone stock and worn out are fun, just capital F fun. That's right. And and anybody who's done that and say, like, okay, i, I got to have one of these. How much is this thing? It's 1500 bucks. is ridiculous. Yeah. I'll put some tires and shocks on it. Well, 20 grand later, you're like, I guess I need another Miata because this <laughs> one's now a race car. Yeah. And, and the people who are Miata owners listening to this, 
they're all nodding their head. Yep, yep that was me. I've <laughs> been there, done that. I remember at one point I was collecting them because they're just cheap enough that yeah. you know you can always justify picking another one up. Oh, I You're think like, well, there's plenty about that. Yeah, I was Actually, thinking about one that. of my jobs when I was selling parts in Chicago. Uh, you know, I I had bought my second Miata, and my boss at the time. Uh, actually wrote on the check, do not use for a Miata. We have actually a monetary unit around 949 Racing is, is Miatas. As we talk, we'll all buy a, a new piece of equipment out yeah. there or pay you know pay for some insurance or something like that. And I was like, oh, man, that was two and a half Miatas. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> Everything, that's, it's a monetary unit. So yeah. anyway, yeah, and here in California, of course, they're, they're dime a dozen they're everywhere. But anyway, that... that, um, that uh, that immediate emotional response that an enthusiast driver gets from the NA, you get that from the ND. Okay. And less so from the NC. The NC worked, and it's a good car. I, it just never struck an emotional chord with me, so we don't develop any parts for it, and we kind of skipped it. But yeah. the ND came around. I drove one, and I was like, holy cow, this is like a modern NA. It feels like all of that plus like all the things that the NA needed, it got, but it's that same like grab it by the scruff of the neck, whip down some unfamiliar road at some speed that you don't want to tell on you know, over the public. <laughs> <That's right. laughs> and, and it's good. And it's immediately, you can drive it right to its limits right away and it communicates with you and it encourages you to drive it fast. So that's the character of the car. So f starting from that point, then we look at the technical aspects of it. Okay. What's it capable of strengths and weaknesses. So the sky active G motor, um, is, capable of a lot more power it's more detuned than um motors in the past you know any car built 15 20 years ago would tend to have uh be tuned closer to its limits because the emissions allowed that now right. they don't really allow that they have a lot of uh protection features in the engine so unlocked it's capable of making more power just from a tune you know uh, if you took a stock mb2 and we've done the stock na6 and mb2 both and put a mega squirt on them and spent two hours in the dyno and one of them makes four horsepower and the other one makes six horsepower it's tiny little gains in power right. it's mostly just a little bit of torque but there's really not much in the way of, of power gains from them stock you have to make them breathe and you have to bolt on stuff mm -hmm. the the nd stock um it's basically 15 horsepower with with the tune and that's just where we are right now we have we just started matt at uh, orange virus tuning is just starting to uh, mess around with it and I think uh, Joe McClugan at DP Tune is also doing some stuff I'm not involved in, but I understand he's got inside the ECU as well. Okay. And they're finding 15 horsepower right off the wow. bat. I think we're going to find even more than that once we get deeper into it. Um, without giving away some trade secrets, there's uh, the, the level of complexity in this ECU is phenomenal. There's something like 3,000 tables. <sighs> yeah, it's absurd. It, it's absurd. Wow. And, and we've got access to about a third of those right now that we've identified and have access to and seeing how they all inter interlock with each other. So, um, but yeah, 15 horsepower right off the bat. That's what we were doing now in a nice, safe gas tune. Um, exhaust helps, intake helps, and we're in the process of uh, building an engine. Um, the three, the I believe 13 through 15 Mazda 3 is the same basic engine. A couple different parts, exhaust cam's different, some intake, some external bits, you know, old, uh, uh, front cut timing cover and what have you, but it's essentially the same block. Those engines, low mileage and really good condition, are available in junkyards all across the country because it's a high volume production car for about 800 bucks. Wow. Okay, so right away you've got a brand new production car with a very high tech, high precision, super tight tolerance, high performance engine for 900 bucks. Wow. So if, if you've got one of these cars, so you know what I want to be able to do is set up where we can build these blocks and the guy takes his stock ND engine pulls it out, 
wraps it in plastic, sits, sits it in the corner of the garage, and goes out and buys a an SAG3 motor, a active G motor, yeah. and with a ported head and then the forged rods and all the stuff on it, and he's making 200 horsepower. And, well, I won't say anything about emissions because that's a whole separate <laughs> conversation, but let's just say that um, there's uh, a lot of opportunities in the ECU. Yeah. So uh, so that's it's kind of cool. So what you're saying is I could go lease one, pull the motor out of it, put a race motor in it, roll bar, shocks, wheels, tires, track the crap out of it for two years, return it back on the lease, and we're good to go. Kind of. <laughs> that's kind of what we're looking at. Not that, I think most people are going to buy these, not lease yeah, them, yeah. but that's what we're looking at is – and you think of any new car that's out there, um, you know, the BRZ is not a shared motor. So right. the ones you find in junkyards are thrashed or blown up. It's like yeah. uh, S2000s, Honda doesn't make those motors anymore, right. the, the 20s and the 22s. You know yourself, the 22, it's basically a race motor. Right. So it's, it's pretty it's, pretty wrong out. It's pretty factory. much hand-built race motor, you know, motorcycle-style. Every clearance on that's got four zeros behind it. Um, there's, it's a basically like a, built like a race engine. So your average schmo can't rebuild one of those. There's probably eight places in the country that can build one of those, rebuild one of those properly. Bottom line is, it's not easy to do a motor swap on one of those, and there's very few cars. Uh, um, so this car, we have access to a motor. Not we, I'm saying you, the people listening to this. If you're thinking about it, it's like, hmm, well, I would want to put a motor on it. Well, they're on eBay right now. They're cheap. Yeah, we yeah. just got to figure out what we're trying to do is build the, the, the sort of the uh, tutorial and the path for that and we'll publish that because that's something I want everybody to have you know this order this these parts from Mazda it'll cost you 600 bucks for the timing cover and the, this and then that whatever and buy it go buy a, an SAG3 motor off of uh, off of eBay and buy these rods and this this cam and this whatever you know or buy our CNC head which we'll probably have for it swap it all across and boom you know that a tune some bolt-ons and an intake and it's going to be making some some serious power and the car is freakishly light you know Published weight is twenty three twenty. Yeah, our car out there has a roll bar, and then the soft top removed, and they about cancel themselves out. We saved I think twenty two pounds total with the roll bar soft okay. top thing. Our car without any gas and our big um, giant wheels and tires on it's twenty two twenty. Holy crap! Yeah, wow. That's a very light car, and it, and, and it still has carpet and air yeah. conditioning. Oh yeah. And, oh, wow. it's got yeah nav. You know. Doesn't have heated seats anymore. We yeah. took those out, but yeah, it's um, it's a it, fully functional, yeah. st- fully functional street car, and uh, uh, and we made uh, 154 on a Dynajet. Okay, um, that was on the 85, and I think um, Goodwin Racing has a little different dyno calibration. They're running a different dyno. They made about the same. So we're looking at about 155, I think, on pump gas um, with with an exhaust. And a tune. Which that's what they say it makes it the crank, right? Yeah, they're saying 155. But you're making it at the wheels now. Yeah, we're making it at the wheels now, yeah. Okay. Which is what you figure. It's, it's a, not... As near as I can tell, this car has um, uh, fewer drivetrain losses. The diff's really small. So the old NA and B, I think, were around 30 to 35 horsepower drivetrain losses. Okay. This one seems like it's 25 to 30. Oh, that's wow. That's what we think. Okay. Um, we won't know until somebody puts an engine on it. On chassis and, and tuners tend not to do that. It's... Uh, pro race teams will do that. They, yeah. they, they do everything by chassis down. So, but it, you have to correlate that to a Dynajet. It's really hard to do. Yeah. So we use Dynajets because they're consistent from one Dyna to the other. Not that they're accurate in and of themselves, but it, all that matters is that when I dyno mine in California and John dynos one in, in, in Texas, we know that the numbers are going to be pretty relevant. It's going to be it's, right. it's consistent. And that's what's the relevant thing is. So, okay. so um, platform-wise, we put big tires on it just last night. 
for the first time, we put the 24540 RE71R, which is a big um, piece of news if you race STR autocross class for SCCA. Right. It's a very popular class. And the conjecture is, is this car going to dethrone the, the NC or the, uh, the, uh, the S2000s? Yeah. And um, it was all really contingent on whether that tire fits or not. Because if they had to go to the t smaller tire, it wasn't going to be possible. But the 245 does a couple of things. Besides improving the all-important contact patch to ratio, it raises the overall gear ratio, which the ND needs. Because second gear is a little on the short side. It needs to be able to go around 68, 70 miles an hour in second gear, which it can't do on the short tires. So now it can, that in a tune, which they're allowed to do okay. in STR. Um, oh, that's right. suddenly raise a rev limit and this thing will go you know almost 70 miles an hour in second gear with these tires <laughs> Holy and crap. turn it about <laughs> and it and if you run an indie with a tune on it it's a little how can i say this it's you almost think the tax wrong because it makes buckets of torque yeah it does at two grand Wow. I mean, two grand. And you're and making, that's, just, that's like, just with the factory, too. You find yourself driving it and like giving it full throttle. Normally, okay, you say a car, car makes good torque, but really, you don't run it that low anyway. You're on track. You'll actually be on an autocross course and look, come, be coming off a turn and look down and see like 28 RPM, and it is grunting and squatting the, squatting the car down wow. and launching off the turn. And, of course, in S2000, that's got to be 6,000 for anything to happen. Yeah. So, effectively, and the, and the S2000s... Um, They've got to be the AP2s to have torque, and they have the crappy gearing. Yeah. So you really want the you want a combination of the gearing and the transmission right. between them, and so they are kind of hamstrung. And the AP1s have the kick-ass gearing, but they don't have the torque. Yeah. So I think all the fast ones are all AP2s. Well, the the ND has the perfect gearing and the perfect torque, um, so it's going to be really really competitive. Anyway, so we did that last night. We put okay. the, the 245s on, and that's going to be a big deal. So uh, for the autocross guys, awesome. Well, I think we're about out of time, but uh, we really appreciate you coming on the show. Uh, where can people find more about uh, 949 Racing and about Super Miata and, you know, plug all those things that, uh, that you can? Well, we have a couple of things that we're involved in. Obviously, our business is 949racing.com. That's our parts and our wheels uh, that some people uh, may know about. We do a line of 15-inch uh, four lug wheels and a line of 17-inch four and five lug wheels. Um, visit the website or one of our dealers to find out more about those. Super Miata is a Southern California-only uh, a sprint racing series for for the NA and NB Miatas, and that's simply supermiata.com. There's a bunch of information there. Um, you can uh, find more uh, information about that there. Okay, awesome. Well, we really appreciate your time. On behalf of myself and Adam, uh, this has been another episode of Slip Angle Show, and thank you, uh, John and Amelia, for joining us. Thanks for coming by. Thanks.